his moment by moment descriptions and little bits of dialogue is sheer genius. He just nailed it. Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor Santiago. My guest today is Bonnie McBird. She is a San Francisco native and she went to Stanford University where she got a BA in music and film. Like all the best people in the world, she was born in California. After being born and getting a BA in music and presumably doing some other things, she spent four years as a feature film development executive at Universal. She has won three Emmy Awards and 11 Cine Golden Eagles. She is also the writer of a little film called Tron. She has written several plays, but uh, Hot Rolls and The Getaway Cabaret have been at least LA hits and have been performed all over the place. She wrote and directed performances of both of those. She, as an actor, studied Shakespeare at Oxford and was in the Shakespeare Company in Lenox, Massachusetts. She studied improv at the Second City and Groundlings, which is also the best place to do those things, and is an instructor at UCLA Extension, where you teach screenwriting. The book that Bonnie McBird chose today is A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls. Amor Tolls? Yeah. His name is really close to being like kind of a Spanish word that means to love towels. I think it's Amor Tolls, like immortals. Oh, wow. I, in fact, I wondered if it was a pseudonym, but I don't think it is. I think it's actually his name. I think it's his and real name. And was a financial guy before he did this. Yeah, we've got two <laughs> authors on the podcast that are financial guys who have written books. I guess maybe they read a lot. I don't know. I read an interview with him and he said the financial thing was he decided not to be a starving artist, that that wasn't going to help him actually be an artist. And he decided he would get himself comfortable and settled. He knew all along he wanted to be a writer. Wow. I mean, he had a plan. And I got to say, I admired that. (laughs) Like some of his characters, he had a decades long plan. He had a long range, very long, long, long plan. (laughs) He must have made more money off of being an author at this point. I mean, he's got three best selling books. He was hugely successful, and I I don't think he was counting on that because that's a rarity, but he was able to stop working in another way immediately off the first book, which is pretty unusual. But yeah, Yeah, that's that's not normal. Makes good money as a writer now, yes. So A Gentleman in Moscow, it reads like a 19th century novel and was written by some famous Russian, but it actually was written by a guy who lives in New York City and is from Boston, and it came out from Penguin in 2019. So why did you pick this book? Well, I love my 19th century novels, as you know. (laughs) Yes, yes. You know, it's just the best book I've read in, I don't know, 20, 30 years. First of all, it hit me personally at exactly the right time in my life. Like it spoke to me personally, hugely. But then just because I've been writing now novels for about 10 years, trying to attack that format and understand how to tell a story at that length, the masterfulness of the storytelling is the next thing. And then his moment by moment descriptions and little bits of dialogue is sheer genius. It's interesting because I've been locked down in the pandemic and I'm still locked down because during the pandemic, my husband got very, very ill and he's still ill and he's going through stuff that makes him immune compromised. And so I'm still on lockdown because I can't risk bringing COVID in. So our world has gone from massive. I mean, London is my favorite city in the world and theater, everything is is here. But now my world is basically this room. It's a nice room, but it's it's what my world is. It's turned into this. And that's what this book is about. So it hit me personally at the right time. This is about a man who, 
you know, he's so wealthy, he grew up unbelievably wealthy and a beautiful estate and, you know, with every freedom and every possible benefit to him. And then he ends up, the, the, the first scene is he's called before a tribunal at the Bolsheviks and says, you're a nobleman and so you're an enemy of the state and we were thinking about shooting you, but instead you have to stay at the Hotel Metropole as a prisoner and if you leave, we'll shoot you. So then he goes back to the Hotel Metropole where he had a beautiful suite of rooms. He goes to his rooms and they're taking it apart. He goes, you don't live in these rooms anymore. You live upstairs in a little attic. So it's about the massive change in circumstances and how this guy transcends that. So for me personally, to have London at my feet and then suddenly now I have this room. There was an incredible connection. And then over the last year, I've discovered the study of Stoicism. The whole notion of, you know, if you don't master your circumstances, they will master you. He has a quote like that in here. And and that's what it is to accommodate the pandemic. And in my husband's case, to accommodate the pandemic and a serious illness. Whereas I have this room in the flat, he has his bedroom. And yet he's very much like this man. <laughs> he is cheerful and he chooses to be. But it's the way my husband's lived his whole life. And I realize that to deal with adversity, there is just no better way than stoicism. And stoicism does not mean like you grit your teeth and are just tough. That's what the modern connotation we hear stoic, be stoic, you know, just, but that isn't what stoicism is about. It's about understanding what is actually real and then not fighting the stuff you can't change, only fighting the stuff you can. It's like the serenity prayer, but it's about knowing the difference. and. So he tells a story with this theme. This is the theme of this. So it couldn't be more relevant to me right now and to Alan. But he also, he's funny. <laughs> and I have to say, I really don't like any writing at all unless it's funny. Like, I write funny. I love funny. It better be funny. <laughs> and this is this very serious theme. And then, then on top of that, he layers on this craft, which as a writer just blew me away. I mean, each character is so different and so surprising and so believable. And the dialogue, it's a sparkling dialogue. I can tell you as a writer, the craft here, I never got pulled out and went, oh, the craft is really excellent. I was just taken up by the story. But then when I stopped reading and sipped away, I'm like, see what he did there. Oh my God, look what he did there. One craft thing that stood out to me and blew my mind, you know, one of the things that you probably have taught and that writers are taught is to not mix metaphors, you know, like pick a metaphor, keep the <laughs> metaphor. Stick with the one damn metaphor. Yeah. yeah, stick with the metaphor. You don't need two metaphors in a sentence, you, don't, you know, just like keep one metaphor. And so there's one character in the book who is this inept waiter and he describes him initially as like a bishop who looks like he was plucked out of a church. And the way he's standing is just sort of erect like a bishop. Right. And then 200 pages later, this guy has become sort of a mover and shaker in the hotel management, but he's sort of a snide yeah, yeah. character and a sneaky character. And then he describes him as a bishop, like on a chessboard that he only moves diagonal, <laughs> diagonally with the lattices. And I just thought that was so brilliant that it's a you know physical description, but it's also a description of his personality. And it's two completely different metaphors. And the book is full of stuff like that. Right. 
he does that metaphor like when he first finds himself in the little room and he says, you know, there's a window the size of a, you know, a coffee table. And then he comes back a couple of pages later, it's a window the size of a chessboard. And then he comes back a couple of pages later, a window the size of, I don't know, a deck of cards or whatever. He just keeps referring to this window and it, you can see that as the man is looking at it, it's seeming smaller. He just does this thing. And similar to the Bishop description, yeah, I totally agree. He did that with Anna, the movie star also. He kind of developed the description of her and he developed the description of the two little girls too. He sort of unfolds his characters, you know, like a very complicated origami thing. It's like, here's this thing. How did that get like that? And he's just kind of magical that way. Yeah. And there's these, just this little asides, particularly with the movie star, when he hooks up with this movie star, you know, he's very gentlemanly and has a, you know, little fling with her. And then as he leaves, he puts her nightgown, which she had taken off haphazardly. He hangs it up and she is so annoyed by this gesture. She doesn't like that. And yeah, yeah. then he just goes on this rhapsody, uh, you know, this long story about how this annoyed her and how she kept thinking about it forever. And it's like kind of her falling in love with him in this strange way. Yeah. Her being annoyed and then kind of coming around to the fact that that was a very nice thing to do. Yeah. And this is, I think the metaphor here is that, you know, he's this kind of comically genteel, rich person who almost, to any normal person, he seems like he's from a world that really only exists in stories. And I think that this actress who was born as a peasant would feel this way too. You know, it's so interesting you say that because I am attracted to these elitist characters, frankly. I mean, Sherlock Holmes is an elitist in a different way. He's, He's a bohemian and he's very different, but he's exemplary in certain ways. And he's like, a superman in certain ways. And this man is too. I mean, he's, yes, he's incredibly privileged, but he wears his privilege so lightly. And also for him, one of the main features of being a nobleman is being polite and being considerate and kind. That's not insulting people in any way, but actually being considerate. So he's actually noble. In one of the Sherlock Holmes stories, Watson, who's a bit of an anti-snob, mentions the description of a nobleman. He goes, a nobleman who was actually noble, <laughs> which he took with us, that doesn't usually happen. But this man, Count Rostov, he was raised with really good manners, but really good manners, when you look at them closely, are about consideration for other people. And so when he hung her thing up, it was like, it's a beautiful thing. Let's take care of it. And, and she's resting and let me do this for her. He wasn't, he wasn't commenting on anything. So to me, you know, all of his actions are like that. So when he really cares about the wine that goes with which dinner, it's not that he's a snob. It's that he knows which wine really, really tastes good with this thing because he's more knowledgeable. Like Sherlock Holmes, you know, knows 20,000 brands of cigar ash. It's like he just knows the things that are important to him. And he'd like to share or use that to the benefit of another person. So to me, that's not a snob. That's just somebody who's developed themselves. And I love that about him. I agree. But I think what a brilliant book to just place him in the middle of the communist revolution in Russia. Yeah. Well, a bunch of human tools, basically. He is exactly the reason that they fought a revolution is to avoid people like this. And it really has echoes of our own politics in the US that like, you know, this elite person is at every turn, he's trying to help people in the way that he knows how. But it comes off to a lot of people as like, you think you're better than me? I do think he's better than that. <laughs> and I love it. 
I agree. I believe that all people are created equal. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you're equal forever. Yeah. I mean, they should have an equal shot at happiness. They should have a, or have a vote, et cetera. But yeah, now people are not actually equal. I mean, we would like that to be the case. I am certainly not this man's equal, but, you know, I don't feel bad about myself about that. You know what I'm saying? But we have a, in America, we have a very strong anti-elitist slant, which frankly bothers me and makes me feel really happy that this book was a hit. Because, for example, I went to Stanford and actually so did Amar Tulls. So we both got master's degrees at Stanford, although different things. And so, you know, that's elitist to some people. And yes, it is. It's a very expensive school. But on the other hand, a woman I was working with is a Sherlockian. I know a lot of Sherlockians, and they tend to be very smart people. She's Midwest, and she's very conservative. And she said something about, oh, these elitist liberals. And I'm like, Anne, what do you mean elitist? And she goes, oh, you know, they think they're so great, and they think they're very intellectual. I said, Anne, you've written two novels. You teach Shakespeare in school and direct Shakespeare plays. Why are you calling them elitist? What's happening in your head that they're elitist to you? You're an amazingly accomplished woman. And she didn't have an answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you find yourself discussing the finer points of a performance of Hamlet in the context of being a director, you're an elitist at that point. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're an educated woman. You're a self-made woman. You're very, very accomplished. You have two books in print and you, it's like, I'm thinking like, so what's elitist exactly? Well, you know, we can always say people who are born more wealthy than we were born, where, wherever we were on the scale, you know, and I wasn't born wealthy. I don't think I'm tolls. I don't know what his early life was like, but that kind of doesn't matter. And, and I think the character here, of course, was born into a very wealthy family, but he didn't slide on that. He learned everything that was presented to him. So he learned all about great food and travel and reading. And he was presented with the highest forms of culture. He got to see the greatest ballet dancers in the world. And he got to see them often enough so that he could tell the difference and really discern what they were doing. So is that, you know, elitist? Well, it was somebody who was presented with tremendous opportunity. But this man used it. I mean, he developed himself with it. And he doesn't go around going, I know all the ballet dancers and blah, blah, you don't know, blah. He just was like, this is beautiful. And I love this thing. And, you know, here's the wine you should have for this. It'd be so good. He isn't really about displaying this in any self-serving way. He just loves the stuff. And so I bemoan the fact that people like the Bolsheviks, and then it happened in the in China, too, in the revolution where they killed all the teachers, you know, all the artists, you know, the people who think and who read and who teach. I mean, because they're elitist, because they know more than you. And we are slanting toward that in America right now. I'm horrified, to be honest. Yeah, I, I'm not as worried about it just because, I mean, it's really presented well in this book, the difference between the US and the Soviet Union, which obviously failed. I don't think we're headed towards this level of madness. And the way he illustrates it in in this book is with the wine. At some point in the book, the Soviet Union decrees that labels are to be removed from wine because no wine is better than any other wine, right. which is logically consistent with the idea that everybody should be equal, but it's a reductio ad absurdum at best. Obviously, some wine is better than other wine. That's yes. just how yeah. things are, right? And also some wine goes with this fish and some wine goes with this chicken, and you know, whatever. It's the idea that you can homogenize life to a degree that it can be equally 
horrible for everyone. That's what happened in the Soviet Union. Yes. And the thing that he points out when he's having these meetings with the count, this is another thing that just stuck out to me that he has to meet with this Bolshevik who seeks out his counsel because the Bolsheviks are now on the world stage and they don't know how to behave. Right. <laughs> yeah, they don't have to do this. <laughs> and so he seeks out the count's wisdom. And one of the things that they do is start watching American movies and they're watching, you know, these Humphrey Bogart yes, movies, yes. And just the Maltese Falcon, all these old movies and the Bolshevik, whatever executive, whatever he is, remarks in all of our movies, we portray everything as being perfect and we portray the government as being perfect. And in all the Americans movies, the government is like openly corrupt. And the Soviets had to believe that their system was perfect because if you read Das Kapital and you read Marx, the entire philosophy is that history was inevitably building towards communism. Like if communism isn't perfect, then that's wrong. And in America, we just accept that our system is kind of fucked up, but right. it's the best one that anyone's ever come up with. Right. It's not great, but it's the best one. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's totally broken, but it's like also still really, really good. You know, it's like an old truck still gets the job done. So, so that's why, Bonnie, I don't worry that we're going to slip into this kind of anti-elitist violence and revolution, because I, I think that at some level, Americans know that differences between people that sometimes they're, resu they're the result of privilege, but often they're the result of hard work because that's possible in our society. And yes, that those differences, exactly. you know, Barack Obama is like a better, smarter person than me. Th that just is what it is. Yeah. I, I wish I was the smartest, most amazing person in the world and that we were all equal, but there are many people who are just much more capable than I am. And that just is a fact. I think uh, probably Amor Tolls is one of them. I've been watching some interviews and things with him and as a writer and as a teacher of writing, I'm very interested in writing process. And so when something this good comes out, I'm so curious as to his process. I want to hear, hear as much about it as I can. And so I listened to a wonderful interview in which um, he was asked the question that all novelists are asked, which is, do you outline or do you pants? You know, pants being fly by the seat of your pants and just find it on the page. And he said he's a consummate outliner. I was going to say, I was like, there's no way he doesn't outline. Then he described something about a gentleman in Moscow that I didn't realize when I was reading it. And yet when he described it, I realized that it made this incredible structural underpinning that really helped move and shape the book. So he said what he did was the first scene happens and then the next scene is like a few minutes later. And the next scene is like a few hours later and then it's the next day. And as the scenes progress, the time space between each one lengthens so that in the middle of the book, it's like years and years and years. Then it flips around. It goes years and years and months and weeks and days and minutes and seconds. And he did this time structure. And he also said that he knows what's going to pretty much what's going to happen. And he says then he does this thing and it's pages and pages long, this outline. And then he said that I start writing. And he said, but because I'm so outlined and so planned that I can go wild while I write the scene. And he says, and sometimes stuff happens that he doesn't know it's going to happen. And so he is wild and free. So he's both. So he's both outlined and wild and finding it. But he feels like he can be wild and finding it while still knowing he's structurally going to bring you on this journey and that's not going to go away. But nevertheless, still some things are very surprising while he writes them. And I'm sure some of them have octopus arms into the rest of it. But basically, I thought that was such a fascinating description because I've been writing now novels for, I guess, about eight years now. And my process has evolved over time. And, and I was like, 
I want to try this. And it's been sort of actually evolving toward this and toward what you described. Because I've been a pantser. I started as a pantser. And, you know, you don't think of them as being pantsers because, you know, the plots are the whole point of them. You have to have the crime and you have to have a really interesting way of solving it and pace all this out. So you think, okay, this is all very structural. But in fact, I've gone on lots of panels of mystery writing conventions and this, that. Most mystery writers are pantsers. And I started by being a pantser. And over the eight years, I'm moving more and more toward the other. But Amortel's description of his process makes so much sense to me. You know, this is a man who has been writing for years and years and years. This didn't just happen like his first. He didn't go, I'm going to write a novel and just do this. He talks about that. I mean, he's wanted to write since I think he was 10 or something. As a very young man, he sold stories to the Paris Review, and that's quite an accomplishment. So he's been working at this for years and years. This didn't just happen. And also his working day is very intense. So he uh, apparently gets up and he works. He does his drafting. And then he, I guess, takes a break and then he reworks what he just wrote. And then I think he has the afternoon off because I think uh, most writers find they, they can't work, you know, like an eight or 10 hour day on the writing. People have between, you know, two and six hours max from what I've read and heard. Yeah. How much time can you spend writing in a day? If I break it up, I can spend six or seven, but not really more than that. It just burns out. Typically, I will spend about three drafting or thereabouts. I, I don't work to time. I work to word count. People do that differently. Some people work to word count. Some people go, I'm going to write from now till noon, boom, and just whatever I get done. I like to work to word count, and sometimes it takes me an hour, and sometimes it takes me four hours, and I, it's, it's hard to say. And then usually later in the day, I'll come back and hit it again. And I mean, you ask writers these questions and they all have their own description of this. But you have to find it for yourself because it's particular not only to you, but also to your state at the time and also to the nature of what kind of writing you're doing. So uh, it's easier for me to draft like screenplay writing and playwriting where it's all mostly dialogue. That's easier for I'm working on a nonfiction book right now. And the two things I've learned, it's my first book. One is exactly what you said, that as a musician, like there is no limit to the amount of film score music I could write in a day. I mean, the limit is however much I can do in 24 hours. You know, I literally could sit down and do it all day long. And with writing, I found that, yeah, after two or three hours, it's just, it's just not there anymore. It's just gone. Yeah. Stop. Like you you just can't, you literally can't do it anymore. Sometimes you can come back to it though. Oh yeah. Oh, one of the reasons for me is that because my book is nonfiction, like you said, dialogue goes faster. Like if I could make this shit up, I could just be like, all right, I'm going to write 2000 words today. But now, you know, I sit down and I get to a sentence and I have to make sure that this is right. And so that really slows the process down. And there are days where I'm like, well, if I could just, if I could just make some shit up, that would be fantastic. Although it's not, necessarily easier to write fiction than to write nonfiction, I don't think. I think it's probably easier to draft fiction because you can just dump any idea you want and then edit later. Whereas like if I if I yes, do, that, I, do that, I have to be able to sort out which ones are true and which ones aren't later. Yes, it is in that sense, I guess right. But I always I'm always kind of sensing like, is this interesting? Do I care? Is this funny? Is it slowing down here? 
do I like this person? Should I like this person? Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of subtext going on in terms of storytelling things. I don't think of them consciously what I'm writing, but they're running under the surface. And so I will take my time. You know, I'll write a paragraph and I'll go like, yeah, I need to <laughs> do this a little bit more. So it's not straight out vomiting drafting. I have done that. I will typically do that in an action scene because it's happening really fast. But yeah, it feels different, different parts of the book. But anyway, I'm always interested in what other writers do. Not to compare because you really shouldn't say I should be writing like that and only like that. Because look at what he came out with by doing it that way. I still think of Stephen King all the time. Yeah. He like wakes up at seven, works till one, has lunch and meetings from one to two, and then like works till seven again. I think that he's been doing that for 40 years, something like that. Yeah. But you know, not everyone's Stephen King. No, he's a, he's a kind of a machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I too am interested in other writers' processes and uh, Bonnie McBird, I'd like to talk about yours and about your book, What Child Is This? Which we're going to do when we come back next week. Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you're thinking, I would like to do something simple and easy to help out this show because I really like it. The thing you can do is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's super simple, takes a second, doesn't cost anything, and it really, really helps the show out. You can only start with a great script, hire great actors, get a director that understands this material and these actors and hope, and then it can still go wrong. Why don't you just make the hits is like you asking, yeah, why don't you just buy stocks when they're cheap and then sell them when they get more yeah, expensive? Yeah, why don't you just do that? <laughs> yeah.